11. Jasmine and Orange Blossoms. On April 16, 1970, my 34th birthday, I walked into headquarters and recognized a comrade from Baltimore. It had been a long time since I had seen her, so I instinctively began to smile. I stopped when she didn't change her solemn expression. I immediately understood that my time was up. She handed me a cassette. I took it into an office and began listening. The police in Baltimore had found a skeleton and identified it as the agent sent into the party and last heard of the summer of 1969. Now, they were contacting Panthers and offering them immunity in exchange for their testimony on behalf of the prosecution. They even went so far as to name those who were going to be charged with kidnapping and murder. When the person on the tape started reading the list of those who would be arrested, the first name was mine. I immediately shut the tape off, gave it back to the comrade, told her to get it to our lawyer, Charles Gary, and disappeared. Finally, I was free. I had written my resignation letter to Huey the month before, but hadn't sent it to him because I hadn't figured out how to avoid the wrath of the Panther paper and those on the Central Committee who wanted me offed. But now I could avoid all that. The Baltimore case had freed me. There was no doubt now, I would go to Algiers and join Eldridge. Within hours of hearing my name on that cassette, I was into my long thought-out disguise. The only thing I needed was a new passport. I decided to wait and see how the case developed. I didn't want to get the passport until the last minute before I left. That way, if the authorities caught on and discovered who I really was, I would already be gone. After dark, I walked up and down Fillmore Street to see if people would recognize me in my disguise. When I passed in front of the Panther office, the comrades gave no sign of recognition. I even locked eyes with some of the people I was living with and they didn't recognize me. That gave me the necessary confidence in my disguise. If even they couldn't recognize me, then surely the authorities wouldn't when I went down to the federal building to get my passport. The FBI offices were in the same building. I contacted headquarters for money that would allow me to move when necessary. June Hilliard told me to stop acting crazy and come back to work, and Gary said the cassette was nothing to be alarmed about. I was enraged. They knew about my predicament. I had sent a report immediately after the Baltimore incident, and I just couldn't believe they were now so blinded by their paranoia that they couldn't deal with my reality. I had to have money, so I went to headquarters to argue my case in person. I was furious I was forced to blow my disguise, even though it was only in front of a few people. I signaled to enter as I usually did and started climbing the stairs to the second floor of the Berkeley headquarters. As I turned to go up the last stairs, Eddie Griffin looked down and, mistaking me for a stranger, moved back to take some defensive action. I had to start talking fast to make him recognize me. That was a close call. My disguise worked almost too well. As it turned out, I blew my disguise for nothing. The only thing I accomplished was getting David to decide to have a meeting at Gary's pad the next day. At that meeting, they finally let it sink in that there might be reason for me to lie low for the moment, and they agreed to send someone to Baltimore to investigate the contents of the cassette. I laid up and waited for the next two weeks. Finally, I heard on the news that the bust had started and the authorities were looking for me. I immediately went to the federal building and applied for a passport, wearing my disguise and using the identity of my childhood friend. I said I had to catch a plane to Europe the next day for a business conference, and the clerk said my passport would be ready the next morning. I sent a friend to pick it up, 
since I didn't want to risk discovery. The only problem now was money. I called June again and he said they would move on it. I couldn't wait, however, and contacted my comrades in the Newsreel Film Collective and was given money on the spot. I then drove to Los Angeles. I wanted to book a flight to London, but the first thing open wasn't until Sunday afternoon, and it was only Friday. There was nothing to do but wait, even as uptight as I was. On Sunday morning around 10 o'clock, I received a phone call from June telling me they had the money. I told him to keep it and hung up. I only booked my escape as far as London, I didn't want to plan all the way through to Algiers, thinking that might attract attention. Checking in at the airport, I was shaky, to say the least, there was just no way of knowing if the authorities were on to me or not. The only thing to do was try to be as cool as possible. The officials hardly looked at me. As the plane lifted off the runway, I allowed myself to relax for a few minutes. Then I had to think about the next step. Once I was in London, I knew I would have to stay inside the transit area and not risk going through customs again. Transit was international territory and I couldn't be touched there. After arriving at Heathrow Airport, my next task was to find a ticket counter inside the transit area so I could book a flight to Paris. I wasn't even sure such a thing existed, but fortunately it did and I didn't have to go through customs. When I made it to Paris, all that was left was getting through customs without being stopped. Upon entering the terminal building at the Orly Airport, I immediately recognized the agents who had held me up the last time. Even though I was confident in my disguise, I kept potted plants, support pillars, and anything else I could between me and them. I got through customs with no problems and headed for Ellen Wright's Paris pad. Ellen telephoned Eldridge for me. He would need to know the name and number on my new passport so he could get the Algerians to clear my arrival at the airport there. The Algerian authorities didn't allow Americans in their country without first getting a visa from an Algerian embassy or consulate in a foreign country, and that took too long, so we were hoping Eldridge could use his connections to help us get around that. It was difficult communicating with Eldridge because Ellen didn't want to use my real name and so he didn't know who she was talking about. Finally, he understood this was about helping someone in trouble and he agreed to put in the clearance. Going back through Orly was the same tense experience as coming in, I saw the same faces as before and I just buried my head in a newspaper until my flight took off. Dar al sure looked good. Free at last, I could finally start the process of winding down. I received the same welcome as last time, was speedily processed, and finally was at Eldridge's side. He cracked up when he realized the mystery person was me. As we drove to the point, I ran down what had happened. We had some urgent business to attend to. The last time I was in Algiers Eldridge had asked headquarters to send him some panthers who could help in the international effort, and I was given authorization to ask Sakuo Dinga and Larry Mack if they would like to join Eldridge abroad, and they were pleased at the prospect. They had been underground for about a year, and since there was no underground machinery within the party to help them, their lives weren't too comfortable. They needed a breath of fresh air and, besides, those were two down brothers, Eldridge couldn't have asked for better. We had several meetings trying to figure a way to get them to Algiers, but the only thing we could think of was to hijack a plane. I urged Siku and Larry to stay away from Cuba at all costs, given the problems Byron Booth and Raheem Smith had had when they had hijacked a plane to join Eldridge in Cuba in 1969, but there must have been some problem because they arrived in Havana, coincidentally on the same day I arrived in Algiers. As I had warned them, 
they soon encountered problems with the Cubans, and we had to move fast to get them out. We got the necessary clearance from the Algerian authorities and communicated that to the Cuban embassy. We also gave the Cubans a letter to deliver to Siku and Larry, who we figured were being detained. Days went by, and then weeks. Still no Larry and Siku. Finally, at one of our many inquiries at the Cuban embassy, they gave us a letter from our comrades. It was obvious from the contents that they had never received our letter. We couldn't figure out what game the Cubans were playing, but now at least we knew our comrades were okay. Two months later, we heard that there were two black Americans going around Algiers looking for Eldridge. We knew it was Siku and Larry, but we couldn't figure out why they hadn't just come to the house, not knowing the consul assigned to meet every flight from Cuba to Algiers had instead avoided them and refused to take them to Eldridge or give them his phone number. We went to town and started searching, finally spotting them. After all the hugging and hand-slapping was over, they explained why they had ignored my advice and gone to Cuba. What they couldn't explain was why the Cubans had held them there for two months. They had been treated well and had a constant security guard and a vehicle at their disposal, but all that had cost the Cubans money, which made it even harder for us to understand why they had been held for so long when they'd had authorization from the Algerian authorities to release them the first day they'd arrived. That was a disagreeable chapter, to say the least. Within a few days after I arrived in Algiers, a reporter spotted me riding around with Eldridge, and soon Eldridge was bombarded with phone calls from journalists all over the world asking if Rap Brown was staying at his place. Rap was the party's minister of justice and had gone underground to avoid some charges that meant big time, and the reporters were disappointed when they learned it was only me, the party's field marshal. I wasn't good copy. It's worth mentioning that the Algerian authorities really showed solidarity with our struggle in the States by welcoming us the way they did. The day after I arrived, Eldridge took me down to present me to the authorities in charge of liberation movements, and they immediately gave me the identification card that was issued to all representatives of liberation movements, plus a new passport. That was real solidarity. The first weekend I was there, the North Korean embassy invited us to attend some diplomatic function. Eldridge didn't feel like going and asked me to go instead. The gathering reminded me of the time I'd been invited to tea with the president of San Mateo Junior College, I felt out of place, and this time I didn't even speak the language. I couldn't talk to anyone, and I passed the evening standing up, looking like an idiot with hands behind my back, sweating like a racehorse. I was miserable. After a time, relief came in the form of a representative of the Zimbabwe African People's Union. Zimbabwe was still a British colony, so he spoke English, and I was happy to have someone to talk to before he had to move on and greet other people. The diplomatic circuit is rather interesting. Not only does everything you do have a meaning, but everything you don't do does as well. For example, if you don't greet someone, that means there is some disagreement between your governments or movements. Not showing up at a function after receiving an invitation is like breaking off diplomatic relations. It became difficult to keep up with it all during the summer season, we were going out five or six nights a week. As part of forging these diplomatic connections, we had the opportunity to see movies from all over the world, and it was then that I began seeing clearly what Janet had been talking about when we had discussed what made revolutionary art. Some of the films really surprised me. One evening we sat through a movie at the Korean embassy that started off with a village of Koreans sending off delegations on bicycles, accompanied by martial music, flowers, and crowds of residents smiling and waving goodbye. 
after this scene was shown in one village, the action shifted to another village, also sending off its delegation. In the end, the movie consisted of nothing but village after village after village. For one hour. After about the third village I heard a loud snore and turned to see Eldridge all slumped over the ambassador, snoozing away. The ambassador merely smiled and signaled to let him alone. Once Siku and Larry had joined us at the point, we started looking for a house that would be big enough to use as an embassy and living quarters. We looked all over town and finally found a place that was the right size and in a neighborhood that didn't look too bad, so we took it and paid one year's rent in advance. We also needed transportation, so we looked for cars to rent. None were being imported at the time, and the biggest one we could find was a Renault 16. After my GTO, I felt like I was in a Model T Ford, but it seemed to be the best thing available, so we rented two, one for Eldridge and one for the rest of us. Little did we know we had just sown the seed of resentment throughout Algiers. It turned out that the neighborhood where we had rented the house was the most bourgeois neighborhood in the city, and the R16 was the car everyone dreamed of having. We didn't know that, of course, we were using a standard of judgment formed in the States, with no idea how it was making us look to the locals. That's what makes most Americans come off as ugly Americans when they travel outside the United States, we only see things through our red, white, and blue filter. And that was just the beginning of it. The Algerians had more cause to think we were arrogant when we started complaining it was taking longer than a week to get our phone installed. We were used to calling Ma Bell in the morning and having the phone in the afternoon, but we didn't know that this was unheard of outside of the United States. Naturally they thought we were crazy. In Algiers, getting a telephone took months. We made all kinds of mistakes like that at first. By the time we started understanding what we were doing, the damage was done. Add to all this that American niggers are a special breed of nigger. We were often seen as arrogant and pretentious simply because, not knowing the rules, we did everything for ourselves, like we had been used to doing all our lives. We didn't wait on anyone to do anything for us. We received a stipend of $400 a month, like all other liberation movements, but we viewed that money as mostly just a symbolic gesture of solidarity, it maybe covered our gas and electricity bill, and so we found other means to pay our own way. We were to discover later that most representatives from other liberation movements had only that amount to live on, period. Some of them also derided us as bourgeois. The thing that topped the cake occurred two weeks after we paid our year's rent in advance on the house. We were summoned to the Algerian office that was responsible for liberation movements and were told they had decided to give us the former villa of the National Liberation Front of Vietnam, in the LBR sector of Algiers. The Viet Cong were by then recognized as a government and had been given an entire complex instead of just a villa. Eldridge had been persistently asking for such a place since he had arrived in Algiers, but we thought nothing would ever come from his request because the Algerians usually didn't give such facilities to mere liberation movements, you had to be a government. But lo and behold, we were now being given an embassy. We took that as a sign of the importance of the black struggle inside the United States, and the importance of the role of the Black Panther Party in that struggle. Kathleen Cleaver was pregnant at this time, and the government of North Korea had invited her to come to Pyongyang to have the baby. After she left, Eldridge and I were invited to the embassy for dinner with the ambassador. Eldridge mentioned that my comrade Barbara was also pregnant and was due to give birth about the same time as Kathleen, and in a couple of days an invitation came for Barbara to go to Pyongyang and join Kathleen. 
I was pleased. When I had skipped the country, I had left my letter of resignation from the Panthers with Barbara back in the States, and she knew not only how I was feeling about things but had seen for herself all the shit that was going down in the party, too. Here was an opportunity to get her out of the mess. We were now ready to go to work building the international section of the Black Panther Party. During the summer of 1970, Eldridge led a delegation of progressive forces from the States to North Korea, and during his absence, Siku, Larry, Bill Stevens, and I would prepare our embassy to officially open on September 13, when he was scheduled to return. Thanks to my Algerian girlfriend, Jamila, and Eldridge's girlfriend, Malika Siri, we managed to get the necessary work done and the embassy started taking shape. The authorities were accommodating, and everything went off without a hitch. It was also with the help of Jamila that I discovered some of the beauty of Algiers. A summer night in Algiers, with a full moon in the air perfumed by orange blossoms and night jasmine, will make a romantic of anyone, at least temporarily. And if you can top all that off with some good quality North African hash, heaven couldn't be better. My bubble of bliss was burst by a summons from the Algerian authorities and the officials responsible for liberation movements. The body of an American had been found and identified as that of Rahim, one of our comrades. They wanted an explanation. I was uptight, to say the least. I wish they had waited until Eldridge got back. I wasn't there when Rahim was killed and didn't know what had happened, so I could only repeat the report from headquarters, which said that Byron Booth and Rahim had had a dispute with Eldridge, and to finance their departure they had ripped off $50,000 of party funds that had been raised by the support committee in Europe. I repeated that story to the Algerians and heard nothing more about the incident. 12. Acid and Pyramids The glorious day finally arrived. On August 5, 1970, Huey was released from prison. Now we were going to see the changes we were all waiting for, and things would get back on the road. When Huey had been shot and imprisoned back in October 1967, there were only a handful of people in the Bay Area who called themselves Panthers, but four years later, when he was released, there were thousands of people waiting to greet him outside the Alameda County Courthouse. The party was now not only a national organization but it had an international office as well. And the party was known all over the world. Huey called us in Algiers and we were bubbling over with enthusiasm. It sure was good hearing his voice again. We all loved Brother Huey and would have done anything he asked. We were confident he was going to straighten everything out. Just two days after Huey was released, 17-year-old Jonathan Jackson made a daring raid on a Marin County courtroom and took hostage the judge, a prosecutor, and three women jurors. He demanded the release of the three men, including his older brother George, known as the Soledad brothers, who had in January of that year been involved in the revenge killing of a guard at Soledad prison. Jackson offered weapons to the prisoners in the courtroom and three accepted them, James McLean, William Christmas, and Rochelle McGee. When they got into a waiting van to make their getaway, the police opened fire, and the massacre that followed showed just how desperate the authorities were to prevent the success of any revolutionary actions. Rochelle McGee was the only survivor among the revolutionaries, but among the hostages, only the judge, Harold Haley, was killed. Two others were wounded. Groups across the country had also started engaging in guerrilla activities. There were many mistakes and many comrades getting killed, wounded, or captured. I began to feel a sense of responsibility to share lessons I had learned in similar actions in the past. 
There were too many people writing books and articles that were nothing more than syntheses of books and articles dealing with guerrilla warfare in other countries and were not based on real experiences of their authors, or real conditions inside the United States. In order to provide some advice based on real conditions and real experiences, I decided to write about an actual operation I had been involved in. That would legitimate the writing. Since I had left the States for good and had no intention of returning, I would sign it with my own name. I started writing. Around that time, the Algiers group received our daily copy of the International Herald Tribune and we were shocked to see a photograph of Eldridge taken at the Pan-African Cultural Festival the year before. The photo accompanied a feature article on the front page that talked about a delegation he was said to be currently leading in the Middle East to visit Palestinian refugee camps. I knew the press distorted information to shape public opinion, but that was the first time I had seen them publish a total fabrication. We immediately contacted the Algerian authorities, the Office of the Palestine Liberation Organization, and Panther headquarters in the Bay Area and informed them of this false news story. If there were niggers in the Middle East, we figured they had to be members of the CIA because, as everyone knew, Eldridge was in Pyongyang. Nevertheless, for the next three days, front-page articles appeared about Eldridge and his alleged delegation in the Middle East. Internationally, the stories had no effect, and in the States, all I knew was that Huey had denounced and denied them in a press conference. And yet, thousands of people must have read those articles and thought they were true, and we felt powerless to stop them. The International Herald Tribune was jointly published by the New York Times and the Washington Post, both considered to be reputable newspapers, and it was distributed around the world. The PLO offered regrets about the incident and said they would be sending official invitations so that we really could visit their camps. Meanwhile in Pyongyang, Kathleen gave birth to a girl, Joju, and Barbara gave birth to a boy, Pyong Yong. Their names were given by Madame Kim Il-sung, the wife of the leader of North Korea. Understanding how vicious children can sometimes be, and knowing he would have enough fighting to do without having to struggle every day with a name like Pyong Yong, we changed his birth certificate the instant they returned to Algiers, calling the baby Jonathan Carlos, after Jonathan Jackson and Carlos Marighella, the Brazilian urban guerrilla. If he ever goes back to visit his place of birth, he can be Pyong Yong there, which means he who fights the imperialist. Eldridge was to return to Algiers on Friday September 11th, for the grand opening of the new international section of the party. While Eldridge was in North Korea, I had asked Malika, his Algerian girlfriend, not to come around anymore, figuring it wasn't good for the party's reputation with our Algerian hosts. She was a very young girl, still in high school, and I knew that the Algerians who were aware of Eldridge's affair were furious. Such a relationship was totally against their traditions and culture and was the cause of much harm in our dealings with them. I felt that the struggle and the party were more important than any personal relationship, so I tried to keep her away. It was during this time that I started to lose some of my blind admiration for Eldridge. I had never met him before that first meeting at Emery's the day after Huey was shot, and in the months that followed, all I saw of Eldridge was him working like ten men to build a mechanism that would keep Huey from the gas chamber. I never got the chance to know him as an individual, and even over the years I worked beside him, it was always work. So it came as quite a shock when, the day after the opening ceremonies of the international section in Algiers, he moved all his books and belongings and refused to come to the embassy. I felt a greater shock and a sense of dumbfounded disappointment when he explained that if Malika couldn't come round, he wasn't coming round. 
I thought there had to be more to it than that, surely he couldn't be putting a 16-year-old girl before the struggle in the party. Siku, Larry, Connie Matthews, Bill Stevens, and myself carried on the functioning of the embassy without him, hoping he would soon come to his senses. We didn't expose what was going on to anyone outside because we felt that the struggle and the party were more important than that kind of petty bullshit. That was one of the biggest mistakes we made, and proof we hadn't thoroughly absorbed the struggle against liberalism that we had learned from Mao. After a time, when it looked like Eldridge was never coming back, we called a meeting and told him to come. He showed up and everyone got on his case. But he had nothing to say about the struggle or the party. He only talked about his relationship with Malika. It turned out he was uptight not only because she had been told not to come around but also because she had had an affair with Larry during the summer. It was during this meeting that we also questioned Eldridge about Rahim's death. We wanted to know why only Rahim was killed if supposedly both he and Byron had ripped off the money. He answered sarcastically that he needed Byron to help him bury Rahim. But by that point we had learned that Rahim had had an affair with Kathleen, so we asked Eldridge whether that had anything to do with his choice to kill Rahim but not Byron. He became very uptight. Yes. I killed the motherfucker. The minute he fucked Kathleen he was a dead man. He started ranting and raving about his wife and how he would kill any motherfucker who dared touch his wife. As I was seeing and hearing all this, I was watching one of my idols crumble into dust. Something inside me was torn apart, for all time. Flashes of things I had heard in the past started resurfacing in my memory. I remembered Emery saying, the man's crazy. But if that was so, why hadn't the party leadership given any details so that we all could have known? We had just opened the international embassy, but really, this was the beginning of the end. And we were stuck. Only Connie and Bill had real passports, while Siku, Larry, and I were stranded, thousands of miles from home, without legitimate papers. Siku and Larry had even gone so far as to hijack a plane in order to come work with Cleaver, and now they were in this mess. There was no need to call headquarters. Some crazy things were going on over there, too. Huey had become the supreme commander and was driving around in a Cadillac and living in a penthouse. All communication with Algiers was cut, and the only person authorized to communicate with us was Huey himself. If anyone was caught contacting us they were severely punished. It must have been serious. We didn't even get anonymous letters. People must have been really terrified. And for those of us abroad, Cleaver had become mortal in our eyes and we now considered him to be a sick person. Still, though, we kept it a secret, we couldn't see any benefit to publicly exposing all we had learned. With things getting out of control at headquarters, it felt even more necessary for us to stick together and try to find out what was going on and decide what we were going to do. It wasn't long before we received orders that we were to convince the entire international community that the Supreme Commander had decided the party would no longer embrace internationalism but something Huey called intercommunalism. Then, the next thing we knew, Huey was no longer the Supreme Commander but the Supreme Servant of the People. It looked like whatever it was that Eldridge had was catching, and Huey had caught it, too. We decided to send Connie Matthews back to headquarters to find out what was going on and then report back to us. But after she arrived in the Bay Area, we never heard from her. And phone calls from Huey were coming less and less frequently. We didn't know what was going on. Around that time, 
we heard on the news that the psychologist and writer Timothy Leary had escaped from a California prison, where he had been serving a long sentence for possession of marijuana. Eldridge and I had once met him on a flight from New York to San Francisco, and he seemed to be a likable person. A couple of days after we heard of his escape, someone came to Algiers asking if we would allow Leary to join us. There wasn't really much to discuss, he was more or less a symbol to many activist progressive whites, and his presence would be a chance to tighten up our solidarity. Besides, he had been sprung from prison by the weathermen, the most advanced element of the white radical movement, and the one we felt closest to. Within 24 hours after we agreed, Leary arrived with his wife, Rosemary. We presented them to the Algerian authorities and told them that Leary and Rosemary were now part of our group. They didn't know about Leary and his history of promoting psychedelic drugs, so things went fine. After they read his resume, which included teaching at Harvard, they even wanted to give him a job at the university in Algiers. We passed long hours listening to Leary recount his escape. He loved an audience, so he gave a good performance. But after listening to him for a while it was obvious that, in addition to Cleaver, we now had another patient. As far as Leary was concerned, acid would save the world. For him, there was no other way. Leary's birthday was in a couple of weeks, so it was decided we would have representatives from the movement come over from the States and hold a press conference to announce his presence in the international section of the Black Panthers. The delegation included Marty Kenner of our New York Support Committee and Jennifer Dorn, the sister of weatherman leader Bernardine Dorn. When the press conference was announced, however, we didn't realize the impact it would have. We announced the presence of Timothy Leary and a Miss Dorn, but without indicating it would be Bernardine's sister instead of Bernardine herself, and the news went off like a bomb. Suddenly, every Algerian embassy and mission around the world was flooded with demands from journalists for visas, and they converged on Dar el Beda airport. The Algerian authorities were totally unprepared and, not really understanding what was going on, they told us to take Leary to the pad at the point and keep him out of sight. They then confiscated all the cameras and recording equipment of the journalists who were piling up at the airport, and only then let them enter the country. The authorities ended up with a mountain of equipment, they had never seen anything like it. Naturally, they decided to run a quick check to find out who this Timothy Leary person actually was and why he was getting so much attention. When they found out, they weren't too pleased. They held some hurried meetings to decide what to do. The first thing was to cancel the press conference. That step would be necessary in order to lift the media siege at the Algerian embassies and missions around the world, they just couldn't deal with the flood of demands for visas. More important, but only implied, they didn't want to be seen supporting Leary's acid philosophy. The decision came down that Leary would be taken to another country, surfaced there publicly to take the heat off Algiers, and then, after about a week, brought back into the country, when, with luck, everything would be cool. Arrangements were made for us to take Leary to the Middle East and surface him in one of the Palestinian camps. We were given four round-trip tickets to Beirut. Just like old times, it was decided that this was a job for the field marshal to handle. There were no direct flights to Beirut, so we flew to Cairo and laid over two days. I was pleased to have the opportunity to visit Egypt, the cradle of civilization, the land of the pharaohs. We arrived in Cairo with no problems. We asked the taxi driver to take us to a good but inexpensive hotel, and he drove us to a hotel called the Omar Khayyam. 
It was the palace built by King Farouk to receive all the heads of state for the opening of the Suez Canal, and it looked like it hadn't been touched since then, the same furniture, everything. It was like something on a Hollywood movie lot, huge rooms with high ceilings filled with Louis XVI, style furniture. It was the kind of fantasy that was perfect for lodging the acid king, Miss Dorn, Marty Kenner, who resembled a plump Woody Allen, and me, Field Marshal D.C. We played queen and kings for a day. While Jennifer and I were getting acquainted in our royal chamber, Leary and Marty disappeared, which got me all uptight since, being responsible for their security, I didn't want to have any mishaps. Cairo was a huge city, and with everyone and his brother having agents there, it seemed fairly easy to disappear and never be heard from again. Finally, they showed. Leary had wanted to go sightseeing. Even though he was traveling with a false passport, he apparently felt free as a bird and seemed convinced that he was invincible. One thing was sure, they felt more secure than I did. President Nasser had died just a couple of months before, and I wasn't so sure about the new regime. The four of us were attracting enough attention as it was, and I advised that we stick together until we got back to Algiers. From Cairo, we boarded a flight to Beirut and arrived in the early evening. In Algiers, the authorities had asked me to travel unarmed, saying that when the PLO representatives met us in Beirut, they could supply me with whatever I wanted. So, for the first time in a long time, I was traveling naked. And Leary was making me nervous. On the flight, Leary satisfied his need for an audience by striking up a conversation with some stranger. I just couldn't get him to be cool. As soon as we walked into the terminal to go through Lebanese customs, I began to feel uptight, especially seeing all the police carrying M16S. To me that indicated they had relations with the Americans. I immediately felt that we were on enemy territory. Plus, there didn't seem to be anyone waiting for us. And there I was without a piece. Of course Leary was entirely content. It was well known at that time that one of Lebanon's government ministers was one of the biggest hash producers in the world, so Leary must have felt like we were in friendly territory, but with all those M16S, I was convinced otherwise. After looking around for our contacts, we decided we couldn't just stand around waiting all night, so we took a taxi to the St. George's Hotel. While we were waiting for room service to bring dinner, I called Eldridge in Algiers to let him know something wasn't going right. I told him that no one had met us at the plane, and I asked him to check with the Algerian authorities to see what was going on. We decided that first thing the next morning I would go to PLO headquarters and try to find someone who was supposed to be dealing with us. I had been given one name as a contact. We finally went to bed, but it was difficult to sleep because someone was banging on a typewriter all night in the room next to ours. After a breakfast fit for a king, I went to PLO headquarters. No one knew anything about us or the whereabouts of the person I asked for. I'd been burnt before, so I got the picture right away. The only thing they could suggest was that I return to the hotel and, when the person I was looking for showed, they would have him call us. We had been had. It was then clear to me that the so-called trip to the Palestinian camps was just a way to get us out of Algeria and take the pressure off the Algerians themselves. Now, I never minded being used if I was let in on it and I agreed, but when it was slipped to me dry like that, I got furious. Anything could have happened. I was unarmed, Leary was traveling with a fake passport, and it was obvious from all the American cars and military equipment that Lebanese relations with the United States were more than cordial. 
Later I was to discover that in apartheid South Africa the Lebanese were classified as honorary whites. I also worried that even if the Lebanese didn't arrest us at the behest of the Americans, they could have busted Leary for the forged passport. I rushed back to the hotel and called Eldridge again and told him to deal with that shit. If something didn't happen soon, I was coming back and Algeria would have to take the heat. Meanwhile, there was nothing to do but wait. Beirut was beautiful and so was Jennifer. As we were talking, we walked out onto the balcony of our room. We were on the third floor of the hotel, and from our vantage I saw a man in the building across the street looking our way with what appeared to be a telescope. I took him for a voyeur trying to get a peek at Jennifer, who was wearing only a t-shirt, but then as we continued to talk, I leaned over the balcony and saw men crouched everywhere, behind every car and lamppost, anything available, and each one had a telescope. For a second, I wondered if Larry had dropped some acid in my orange juice. Then I saw a man, a camera dangling from his side, climbing up the sewer pipe on the side of a building, and more men on roofs that had views of our balcony. All those men weren't a hallucination, they were photographers. And they were everywhere. As it turned out, the person Leary had talked to on the plane was a reporter, and he had recognized Leary's face. Apparently, the whole Middle East press corps had been looking for us since we arrived, and now they all seemed to be outside our hotel. What's funny is that it took them a while to find us because they never thought to look inside the very hotel that had long been their favorite. That explained the typewriter we had heard all night next door. Finally, Leary was uptight too. He leapt across his bed and was dressed in a second. Someone opened the door to check out the hallway, and flashes started popping off. We were surrounded, under siege. There was no way out. I knew we were in trouble. With all that attention, it wasn't possible for the Lebanese authorities to ignore us, and I wondered how much time we had. I made another desperate call to Algiers to let Eldridge know about the new situation, and I asked that he try to speed up our rescue. Marty went downstairs to see what he could find out. He ran into a journalist he knew from New York, a Jew who had married a black woman and then become a Muslim and moved to the Middle East. It seems he was a progressive back home, so we decided to invite him up and see what we could work out. We learned that there is a code between journalists that says they wouldn't use personal relationships to get scoops on each other. In order for him to be able to continue working among his colleagues, he would have to share at least something with them. I didn't want anything to do with all those vultures who were putting so much pressure on us and jeopardizing our security, but as a group we decided that we would let the journalist interview us and then he could deal with that information the way he liked, in exchange for his helping us, naturally. Our top priority was getting Leary away from that hotel and hidden somewhere. He was running the greatest risk because of his false passport. The journalist left us to see what plan he could come up with. I asked Marty to go down and see if he could find a journalist I knew, Eric Pace of the New York Times, whom I had met at Cleaver's Pad in Algiers. He was one of the best-known journalists around the Middle East and knew most of the region's heads of state. Because of his reputation, I thought that if there were anyone around who could give me an assessment of our situation vis-a-vis -vis the Lebanese authorities, it would be Pace. Marty found him and brought him to the room. I asked Pace what he thought the authorities were going to do. He said that probably the next day someone would show up quietly and ask us to leave. I said, that's all? And he answered, that's all. I relaxed a bit. I was confident he knew what he was talking about. 24 hours would be plenty of time to get out of there, to safety. 
The journalist Marty knew came back then, and his plan was to create a diversion so Leary could go out the back door, where the reporter's wife would be waiting with a car to drive him to their house. Leary would lie there until we could get a flight back to Cairo. To draw attention away from Leary's escape, we decided to hold a press conference downstairs in the banquet room that the hotel had put at our disposal. We announced that the purpose of the gathering would be to present Miss Dorn to the press. At that time they still didn't know that Miss Dorn was not Bernardine but her sister. With that distraction pulling journalists out of the hallway, Leary would then have a chance to slip out of the service elevator and into the waiting car. At the appointed hour, Jennifer, Marty, and I took the elevator down to the banquet room. For the first time in days, the hallway in front of our room was empty. So far, so good. But as soon as we stepped off the elevator I knew something wasn't right. The photographers and journalists that had been laying siege to our room just looked at us as we went by and didn't seem to be particularly interested. We entered the banquet room, in which we found only a couple of TV teams and a handful of journalists. Just as we were getting seated and preparing to start the conference, it became clear what was happening. I heard a loud roar of voices and running feet, like a stampede, out in the hallway. I knew then that either the journalist had betrayed us or our room had been bugged. Whatever the case, it was obvious that they were on Leary's trail. At that point, though, there wasn't much to be done about it, so we went ahead and gave the press conference and talked about political prisoners back home and expressed the solidarity of our movement with the struggling people of Palestine, hoping at least some good would come of the event. During the question and answer period, Eric Pace of the New York Times kept pushing me to denounce the PLO for treating us as they had, I had told him what had happened, but I didn't go for it. Even though I was furious with the way things had been handled, my solidarity with their struggle was stronger than my personal anger. After the press conference, we returned to our room and waited for news. It came in the form of Leary, worn out and limp as a wet rag, arriving with all the journalists on his tail. He explained that he had taken the service elevator as planned, but when it arrived on the ground floor and the door opened, the reporters were all there waiting for him. He hopped into the waiting car and was then chased through the streets of Beirut. When he finally got to the apartment building of Marty's journalist friend, his wife, the driver, was practically in a state of shock. As they ran into the building, she pointed Leary to a door. He burst in only to find he was in the home of a Lebanese family that was sitting on the floor having dinner. The journalists were right on his heels, so he started opening doors in their apartment and finally found himself trapped in the bathroom, cornered like a rat. When the journalists got to him, he was standing on the toilet, holding onto the pipes, trying to catch his breath. The photographers clicked away. After he got back a little wind, he somehow made it through the pack of journalists, ran back outside, and made his way back to the hotel. The only thing we could do then was wait until 3 or 4 in the morning and hope we could sneak out of the hotel and get to the airport while everyone was sleeping. There was a flight at 6 in the morning and we needed to be on it. We all staggered up around 4 in the morning, looked out into the hallway, saw it was clear, and checked out of the hotel. Marty had arranged for a taxi to be waiting for us, and we piled in and told the driver to circle around through Beirut for a while. After we made sure there was no one following us, we told him to head for the airport. Luck was with us and no one seemed to be on our trail. We arrived at the airport, immediately checked in, and hustled our way through customs so that we would be in the transit area where, in principle, we would be safe. We had about an hour and a half to kill before the flight, 
so we looked for a restaurant to have breakfast. The one we found wasn't open yet, but we were allowed to come in anyway, although they could only serve us coffee. We noticed after a while that all the workers in the restaurant kept trying to get a look at us. Marty went to the newsstand and bought one each of all the morning papers, and wouldn't you know, there was Leary, hanging onto the bathroom pipes, under the biggest headlines I'd ever seen, all of them blaring something like the king of hashish in Beirut. I guess the Lebanese press had substituted hash for acid because many people in their culture wouldn't know what acid was. Anyway, all the papers were the same. On the inside pages there were photos of Jennifer, Marty, and myself at the press conference. I guess there wasn't much news that day, because we were about the only thing they talked about. There was even a photo of Marty, Jennifer, and myself on the front page of the International Herald Tribune. The Algerians had wanted Leary surfaced somewhere else, anywhere besides Algeria, and although it wasn't done according to the plans I had been given, the contract had more than been filled as far as I was concerned. By the time we got back to Algiers, a week would have gone by. I guess the PLO had a good laugh about all that, but I had done my job. Yet there was still the problem of getting back in the country. We had to fly through Cairo again, and with all the attention we were getting, I didn't know how the Egyptian authorities would react. We decided that when we arrived in Cairo, we would check into the hotel that was located inside the transit area, where we wouldn't be on Egyptian territory. A few minutes before we were to take the bus to the airplane waiting on the tarmac of the Beirut airport, a journalist got through customs and found us. It was Arnaud de Borchgrave of Newsweek. He didn't approach us in a friendly manner, and after all the pressure the journalists had put on us over the past few days, we were furious and didn't want to have anything to do with him. When it was time to go to the plane, the airport authorities sent a special bus for just us four, but Borchgrave jumped on also, hoping to get some info out of us. We refused to talk to him. I stared straight into his eyes with the meanest look I could muster. I really wanted to wring his neck. At last, we got on the plane and were off to Cairo. In Cairo we had to walk from the plane to the terminal, and the distance was far enough that we couldn't distinguish what kind of people were making up the large crowd gathered outside the terminal doors. From where we were, I thought it was passengers waiting to be taken to a flight, but as we drew closer and it became possible to distinguish individuals, I saw that there in the middle of the crowd was Borchgrave. He must have flown there in a military jet, there was no other way he could have gotten to Cairo before us. We had left him on the tarmac at the Beirut airport, and no other commercial flights to Cairo were scheduled, and yet here he was, surrounded by Egyptian soldiers, policemen, officials in civilian clothes, and journalists. I told my crew to push through the crowd and run into transit. I was surprised when no one resisted us, and, feeling all right, I went into my act. I demanded to see the North Korean, Chinese, and Vietnamese ambassadors. Some official in civilian clothes came to me and said everything was okay, brother, you're on friendly territory and there's nothing to worry about. With that, I turned to Marty and told him to tell the Egyptian authorities that for Borchgrave to have beat us here, he must be working for the CIA. The Egyptian police then proceeded to escort him onto the plane that was returning to Beirut. Finally, a small victory. After we passed a few hours in the transit hotel, the Egyptian authorities came to us and said they would be honored if we would stay a while and visit Cairo, inviting us to leave transit and go into town. We agreed and returned to the Omar Khayyam Hotel. I tried to call Algiers, but apparently Cairo was using the same phone company that had installed our system in the Algerian embassy, 
and it would take three days to put a call through to Algiers, I sent a telegram instead. Our next problem was getting back through the airport in Algiers. The policemen there didn't make any exceptions, even if they knew you, you either had to have a visa or you had to have other authorization from the Algerian authorities, period. Jennifer, Marty, and Leary only had American passports, and if I couldn't get through, we would be blocked at the airport. To eliminate that problem, we went to the Algerian embassy in Cairo, explained our case, and were lucky to each receive a visa from the consul. Only then could we relax and see the pyramids. We returned to Algiers without incident. Meanwhile, Borchgrave was plotting his revenge. He invented one of the most vicious articles I'd ever seen, and it was run, full page, in Newsweek. Once again the press printed an article that was an utter fabrication, from the first letter to the last period. He sure was angry with us and was spitting venom. The PLO representatives again apologized and promised to send us invitations to come visit their camps. Leary also continued to be more of a problem than we had bargained for. It seemed as if the people moving dope on an international level had decided to make Leary and Algiers a crossroads on their route, and that meant trouble for us. The only way to enter Algerian territory at that time was by getting a visa somewhere, or by going through the Panthers, and since Leary was under our auspices, we had to clear, through the Algerian authorities, all of his friends who came to visit. We would meet them at the airport and, for security reasons, search their luggage. We routinely discovered enormous quantities of acid stashed away. If Algerian customs officials ever found any of that stuff, we were all in for it. Talking to Leary was like talking to a brick wall, however, because he was so spaced out he either didn't understand the danger to us or didn't care. Week after week, the pile of confiscated acid grew larger. Leary and Rosemary went so far as to make trips down south to the oasis at Busada, where the Sahara Desert began, to do their drugs in peace. They would spread out an oriental carpet, strip naked, and drop acid. They were even less concerned for the customs and traditions of the country than we had been. One day in January 1971 we learned that Leary and Rosemary were planning a dinner party and that among the invited guests, unbeknownst to the Learys, were some agents from the Algerian Secret Service. It was around 5 in the afternoon when we were informed, and the dinner was scheduled for 8. We couldn't allow the Algerian authorities to hear Leary run his acid philosophy and possibly be offered a sample, we had to stop the dinner. There wasn't time to convince Leary to cancel it, there were only a couple of hours to go and guests would be arriving soon, so we decided instead to bust Leary and Rosemary and put them under house arrest at our pad at the point. Larry, Siku, and I went to take them into custody. When Leary opened the door, he knew immediately that it wasn't a friendly visit and started calling for help. Rosemary was cutting some onions with a long butcher knife, and she gave it up without a fuss. We took them to the car and headed for the point. On the way, Leary showed another aspect of his character when he turned to Rosemary and said, It's okay, honey, it's just a bunch of niggers flexing their muscles. Obviously he didn't know enough about Siku, who was sitting next to him. As soon as he heard Leary's words, Siku made him understand he had made a big mistake. Once we were at the point, we put the couple on ice. They had all the comforts and didn't suffer any physical neglect, but we held them for about a week, and during that time we filmed them for a video Eldridge wanted to make and send to the States. The soundtrack was a statement by Eldridge that attacked drugs in the movement. In a press release he said, something's wrong with Leary's brain. 
we want people to gather their wits, sober up, and get down to the serious business of destroying the Babylonian Empire. To all those of you who look to Dr. Leary for inspiration and leadership, we want to say to you that your God is dead because his mind has been blown by acid. Unfortunately, the message landed like a stink bomb. Without knowing what had led up to such a drastic position, the progressive movement and many of our allies flew into an uproar. We were branded fascists and pigs. Even the Algerians were on our case. After we released the Learys, we were summoned by the Algerians to explain ourselves. They said we couldn't create a state within a state. Eldridge asked for a 30-minute break in the discussion and went out and got all the confiscated acid, enough for 20,000 hits, and came back and dumped it on the desk of Commandant Sliman Hoffman, the official in charge of liberation movements. With that, the meeting came to a speedy conclusion and we were relieved of the responsibility of the Learys. That suited us fine and ended a very unpleasant episode. 13. Camels and Cadillacs By then, it was obvious to those of us in Algiers that Huey was not going to straighten out and put things back on the road as we had expected. He had actually reinforced Hilliard's hand and not only continued the backward movement but shifted it into high gear. Geronimo Pratt, a high-ranking member of the party, had been busted in Texas and was then expelled after being accused of wanting to assassinate Hilliard and Newton. The New York 21 were also expelled for criticizing the leadership and politics of the party. There seemed to be a move to eliminate the most radical elements of the Black Panthers. I had been hoping that Huey would call for a general retreat or something that would allow the party to devise new strategies and tactics to deal with the situation that then existed. Instead, it looked like he was moving on all people who didn't agree with him in his direction, a direction that was in no way clear to us, mostly because it hadn't been defined. I didn't know what to do. When Huey was released in August of 1970, our love for him was so great that we would have done anything he said. But with the case of megalomania he came out of prison with, his attitude, as far as we could see, was out of sight, out of mind. He kept us isolated and in the dark about what was going on. About that time I received an anonymous letter, the only one we had ever received, saying, it's too bad about poor Fred, and then it went on to talk about how messed up things were. It was later revealed, as a result of the Freedom of Information Act, that the letter had been sent by the FBI. I guess the Bureau didn't realize how isolated we were and that we didn't even know about the murder of party captain Fred Bennett. When I received the letter, we could only wonder Fred who? And Fred what? But thanks to their letter, we knew something had happened, the dialectic can be found in the most unusual places. We began holding meetings with everyone in Algiers to discuss all the problems that we could identify or recognize, with the purpose of deciding what each of us would want to do. Everyone talked of their own experiences. There were so many people in Algiers by that time that after one week we hadn't yet finished hearing from everyone. Our meetings were interrupted by an invitation of two round-trip tickets from the PLO to attend an international conference on Palestine that was going to be held in Kuwait. Since I was supposedly the Middle East specialist, I was charged with going to the conference and taking with me whoever I wished. I chose Siku. The only problem was that we both were wanted by the Americans. We were to travel with the PLO representative and other invited guests from Algiers, but the flight plan called for us to pass through Rome, which made us uptight. We knew nothing about the politics of Italy, so when we arrived at the airport, Siku and I stayed in transit during the layover, with our backs to the wall so that we could watch in all directions. 
we made it through with no problems and finally left for Kuwait. It was with great surprise that when the doors of the plane were opened we were greeted by the spectacle of a Cadillac Eldorado driving up to the disembarking ramp. There was a brother behind the wheel with one of those things on his head like we had always seen Yasser Arafat wear, only he had it broken back in a real mean manner, very cool. For a minute I was wondering if maybe we were at 125th Street and 7th Avenue with the black nationalists in their traditional garb. Kuwait was a mind-blower. The oil that is the country's source of wealth only began to be exploited in the 50s, and that wealth was spread among a population of only about 400,000. All public services were free, schools, hospitals, telephones, utilities, you name it. And as far as housing was concerned, they had some houses that could have served as models for a Cecil B. DeMille movie. Their wealth had not come from the traditional system of exploitation and oppression of one class by another, however, and instead of neighborhoods, and society in general, being organized along class lines, everything was organized along clan and family lines. A sheik's palace might be next door to an ordinary house that was the home of a relative. They didn't seem to have the usual capitalist mentality. But they also weren't afraid of showing their wealth. It was as if you took a half million niggers from any ghetto and gave them more money than they could spend. Everybody had big rides and pads. Anytime they needed something, they imported the best of whatever it was from wherever it existed in the world. I read an article in a newspaper a couple of years later talking about the number one social problem of the Kuwaitis, which was, leisure. It turns out they didn't know what to do with all their spare time. While I was there, I remember getting a ride from someone who apologized because his car was already one year old. Even so, the citizens there had a certain comportment that reminded me of brothers off the block, who would stop their cars in the middle of the street, lie back on the fenders and hoods, and rap to each other, all the while fingering their prayer beads. It beat smoking cigarettes. The other side of the coin was less brilliant. Because of Kuwait's riches, people immigrate there from all over the world seeking jobs, there is a larger immigrant community than there are native Kuwaitis, and it is the immigrants who do all the work. And nothing is free for them. Immigrant workers, I learned, didn't even get social security, which means no sick leave or health benefits. So even though Kuwait citizens are well provided for and don't lack anything, it's a different story for the immigrant workers. At the conference, I met a woman, Najat, who worked for local television. She was one of the most intelligent and beautiful people I've ever known. After leaving the studio where she had interviewed me, we met her boss, who was walking with some other men. Also accompanying us was a man who worked as Najat's assistant. I learned something new about Kuwaiti culture when I noticed Najat was talking to her boss while facing her assistant, who then turned to the boss and repeated everything Najat had just said, as if he were her interpreter. It took me some time to realize that she, being a woman, didn't have the right to speak directly to a man in a higher position. After they finished talking, I asked her how she could deal with that, especially with her intelligence and consciousness. She turned to me and said, what would you have me do, go to Europe and live like a European? I tucked my tail between my legs, turned as red as I possibly could, and shut my mouth. Even though she had been educated in the finest schools the Western world had to offer, she was home in Kuwait and had no intention of leaving. Siku and I were placed in a suite in the new Sheridan Hotel, where the conference was being held. Given the accommodations accorded us, it was obvious we were considered something special. 
It was rather embarrassing comparing our suite to the rooms of those we had traveled with, but we didn't let it bother us too much and settled down to the business of the conference, which, for Siku, partly meant making friends with the attendees. Siku and his charm quickly became the pet of all the Palestinian women, and any time you saw a large group of women giggling and talking in a circle, if you could work your way to see what the attraction was, in the center was Siku. For the women, he was the hit of the conference, and before it was over, they were all calling him by name. They loved Siku. Finally, it was my turn to deliver the speech that we had prepared back in Algiers. The conference was being held in February of 1971, and only five months before, King Hussein of Jordan had turned his Bedouin army loose on the Palestinians and in a matter of days had massacred 20,000 of them in an atrocity that came to be known as Black September. During the conference, we were taken to hospitals to see survivors recovering from their wounds. We met some who had been in hospitals in Jordan, including hospitals that had been attacked by King Hussein's troops. Some of the survivors had been wounded twice, once in battle and the second time in the hospital. Not many lived to tell about it. In my speech, I condemned King Hussein without mincing words. To us he was a butcher and as much an enemy of the Palestinian struggle as Israel. To my shock, I received condemnations for the speech, even by representatives of the PLO. I just didn't understand anything anymore. They told me I shouldn't have said those things about Hussein. He was their brother. The only thing I could think to say was, with a brother like that, you don't need any enemies. Before delivering the speech, I had given interviews to print and radio journalists who were covering the conference. None of those interviews were ever published or aired, everything I said was censored. This was a politics that was beyond my comprehension. I didn't understand how I was supposed to be on the side of people who weren't struggling for the same freedoms. For example, I could not consider Idi Amin, the new self-proclaimed president of Uganda, my brother when he was a butcher. Objectively, I understood that he was a product of British colonialism, but subjectively, as far as I was concerned he was also part of the disease inherited from colonialism that must be torn from the body of Africa if the continent is ever to become healthy and whole again. He and all of his kind, like the French creation known as Emperor Bokassa of the Central African Republic, belong on the dung heap of history. The fact that their skins were black didn't cut any ice with me. I considered them my enemies and enemies of freedom and justice. After the conference ended, Najat took us on a tour to show us Kuwait and a bit of the desert. It was astonishing to see a big patched-up Bedouin tent with sheep, goats, and camels grazing out front and a big coupe de ville parked alongside. It was also interesting to meet Kuwaitis whom I had run across at different universities back in the States and who had since finished their studies and returned home. I saw several who had attended San Francisco State College. After a memorable 10 days, Siku and I headed back to Algiers. We flew from Kuwait to Cairo, and again we made the pilgrimage to the pyramids, which struck me as a Disneyland type of attraction rather than what you would expect at an ancient historical site. There was a blacktop road that passed the Sphinx, climbed the hill, and circled the biggest pyramid of Cheops before continuing on past the two smaller pyramids. Right in front of the Sphinx there was a restaurant with a huge marble patio in front. With all those millennia of history embodied in these monuments of antiquity, I thought it sacrilege to desecrate the area like that. Perhaps one day someone will see the necessity of removing all those distractions, including those terrible dudes with the camels who hustle tourists to take rides and have their pictures taken. They don't take no for an answer, 
and I had to walk a good way into the desert to try to shake one. I just wanted to contemplate the historical significance of everything around me without the interference of the modern world, but he wouldn't let me. There was nothing to do, he relentlessly kept trying to convince me to take a ride on his camel. On my return, when we were getting close to the point where we had started and he realized that I really wasn't going to take a ride, he started insulting me and my ancestors, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Apparently, he wasn't used to losing a client. It was during that trip to Cairo that we met David Dubois and his mother, Shirley Graham Dubois. It was a great honor to meet the family of W.E.B. Dubois. The great activist became David's stepfather when the younger Dubois was in his mid-twenties, we also had the opportunity to spend an evening with a group of Nigerian students who were attending the American University in Cairo. I welcomed the chance to have them clarify for me the Biafran civil war that had just ended in their country, but, unfortunately, each student had a different explanation and the evening deteriorated to the point that it seemed the war was going to be fought over again in the very room we were sitting in. I left Cairo more confused than ever. 14. The Split We arrived in Algiers in time to hear a phone call from Huey to Eldridge, coming with the news that the next morning Huey was going to be on a San Francisco television talk show, live. Since rumors had begun to circulate that he and Eldridge were no longer seeing things eye to eye, he told Eldridge to expect a call while he was on the air. He invited Eldridge to use this opportunity to show the audience that the party was unified and that there were no problems between these two leaders. Eldridge agreed. When he hung up the phone and turned toward everyone in the room, it was understood by all, without a word being said, that this was it. Although our meetings had not yet finished and no decision had been made about what we were going to do, we knew that with Huey calling on live TV, we couldn't allow ourselves to give anyone the impression that we were going along with so many things Huey was doing that we were opposed to. Really, Huey forced our hand here. At that time, still not having full information about what was going on, I was nevertheless prepared to participate in a leadership retreat to try and devise new strategies and tactics to deal with the existing situation. But, knowing that comrades were going to be watching the show, I couldn't pretend that things were okay between us, that there were no internal contradictions. I voted, along with everyone else in Algiers, to use the occasion to let the world know that we didn't agree with what was going on at headquarters. There was not one dissenting vote. Our hand had been called. When Siku and I returned to Algiers, our group had grown. Among the new arrivals were Charlotte and Pete O'Neill from Kansas City, Missouri. Pete was an excellent electrician and had connected the phones to a mechanism that activated tape recorders whenever a handset was lifted. He also hooked up the phones to speakers located throughout the embassy. That way, everyone could get news at the same time. If someone needed to have a private conversation, there was an override switch that cut everything off, but because we were so numerous, and in order to help us not forget anything, all phone calls were recorded. That way, if someone was out, they could listen to what had been said while they were gone. One of the characteristics of exile was our insatiable thirst for information. The next morning, we were all assembled in the office waiting for Huey's call. Eldridge had written a declaration of our position and was ready to deliver it. Finally, the telephone rang. You could have heard a pin drop. Huey's opening conversation with the announcer was cordial and polite, and then the announcer asked Eldridge if he had a statement he would like to make and Eldridge dropped the bomb. 
he made it clear that we weren't going along with the things happening at headquarters and said that we thought David Hilliard, as chief of staff, was destroying the party. When Eldridge finished, there were a few seconds of silence and then Huey said something about going before the central committee and then the announcer hung up the phone. We waited for Huey to call back. We didn't have to wait long. He had literally gone mad, tapes of those telephone conversations are still floating around somewhere as evidence of what happened. His response was not politically motivated but personal and vindictive. He asked to speak to me, wanting to know where I stood. I told him I didn't agree with the direction things were moving. He said, okay, I'm going to crush you. After that, our Algiers group immediately went to work. We made a lot of videotapes, with everyone giving their opinions, and started sending them to the states. We also made one using the tapes of Huey's crazy declarations. In his madness, he related everything to sex, including saying he would come to Algiers and fuck Kathleen and then he was going to fuck the rest of us in our asses. The conversation went on and on like that until he rang off. Another idol had bit the dust. The Supreme Commander had been insulted on live television and his only response was to vow revenge. Our telephone started jumping off the hook. Journalists from around the world wanted to know what was going on. That was a good thing, because with our isolation in Algiers, the only way to make our views known was through the news media. We made history of a technical nature when one of our videotapes became the first half-inch tape shown on a national channel. Our distribution network was quite efficient, and just 24 hours after we had made them, our tapes were already being shown in the States. In February of 1971, video was our most powerful weapon. Unfortunately, video also put us and our allies in danger. One of several places we dropped our tapes in the States was at the store of Miriam and William Seidler, who owned a children's clothing shop across the street from the Philadelphia branch of the party. The Seidlers were white progressives from way back, they had been notably active in the defense of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and when they received our tapes they passed them on to allies who dealt with getting them shown. On March 18, 1971, a man went into the store and shot William. His killer was never caught. I'm not sure if he was ever even searched for. For me, however, there was never any doubt as to who was behind that cowardly murder. Things in the States were very uptight by this time, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area. The first thing that happened when the split broke into the open was that everyone went for the stashes of arms. Because of the close relationships between people in San Francisco and Oakland, everyone knew about the same main stashes, as well as other places weapons might be hidden. That created a very dangerous situation and here the cowardly nature of Newton and his followers was to manifest itself again, although not quite yet. About this time, Connie Matthews and her husband, Michael Tabor, a member of the New York 21, showed up in Algiers. Through them, we were finally able to get inside information about what had been going on. After we had sent Connie to headquarters back in the fall, we had not heard from her since, and now we found out why, she had become Huey's personal secretary. She told us everything. The goings-on at headquarters sounded like a Fellini movie script, cocaine, orgies, beatings, and murders. We also found out what had happened to Fred Bennett. As the party grew, and as the repression came down, the traditional forms of personal relationships between certain individual Panthers more or less broke down. One never knew whether one was going to be alive tomorrow, 
or maybe end up in prison or be sent to some far corner of the country. Relationships of a sexual nature were especially short-lived and superficial, happening mostly between people that were in close proximity at any given time. Bobby Seale, for instance, had been in prison several months when Artie, his wife, became pregnant by Fred Bennett. At the time he became a panther, Fred was a bus driver in San Francisco, and he was among the hardest working and most dedicated panthers in the San Francisco office. He happened to be present when Huey started beating Red, the nickname of Geronimo Pratt's wife, Sandra, and as Fred moved to intervene, that was when he got himself in trouble. One was not supposed to ever make a move in the direction of the Supreme Commander. I don't know which of those two things, defending Red or getting Artie pregnant, was used to justify the decision, and maybe it was both, but Fred was murdered and his body was burned and his bones crushed. I was sent to San Francisco Chronicle article after his remains were found and identified. The photograph used to illustrate the news story showed one of the largest pieces of bone they had found, placed next to a dime. The dime was the bigger of the two. Fred Bennett, who had dedicated his life to the struggle for peace, freedom, and justice, was killed to maintain the image and dominance of a megalomaniac. In one of the videotapes we made in Algiers, each of us gave a criticism about something we specifically knew was going on at headquarters. I criticized David Hilliard and Charles Gary for their negligence in the Baltimore affair. They'd had the cassette tape with all the names of the people who were to be arrested, and yet they made no effort to warn them or protect them, and in the end something like 17 people were arrested because of their negligence. For me, that was inexcusable and criminal. Things had deteriorated to the point that it was no longer a question of politics, per se. It was a question of dominance and maintenance of their power over others, at all cost. After the split, the Panthers in New York ran out all those who supported Newton and Hilliard. One day Zide called me screaming that Robert Spider Webb had been killed, and I knew immediately why. Spider had been lured into a trap at 125th Street and 7th Avenue, the crossroads of Harlem where we used to debate the black nationalists, and he'd been shot in the back of the head with a .45 automatic, in broad daylight. That news crushed me, just as Newton had promised. I stood there holding the phone, only able to speak a few incoherent words. When the others in the office saw that I had flipped out, they took the phone from me to deal with it. I sat in the hallway for the next four days and didn't move or talk to anyone. I don't remember where my mind went, I don't remember anything. All I know is that I went out for four days. I just shut everything off. When I came to myself again, I felt nothing but blind rage and hate. There I was, stuck in Algiers, without the means to move, and seeing my closest comrades being picked off, one by one. I felt a rage and a hate deeper than I had ever felt before. Deeper even than what I had felt when those four little girls were blown up in the church in Birmingham, deeper because of my incomprehension at what was the source of such actions. These murders were not coming from the Ku Klux Klan or from the racist police. They were coming from the thing I had dedicated my life to, that I had seen as the means to put an end to so much suffering. And now it had become a monster and was being used to eliminate the best among us. The drive was no longer focused on the struggle for peace and justice but on the need for power and personal recognition. It had been turned inward upon its own. It had become a cannibal. Comrades in the States decided then that they could no longer sit idly by while Newton was running wild and ordering the murder of our brothers and sisters. It was, however, necessary to respond as much as possible in a political manner, 
rather than for personal and emotional reasons. An indiscriminate fratricidal war would serve no purpose other than satisfying the thirst for revenge. For some time, the Panther paper had been used to attack and vilify anyone who had fallen out of favor with Hilliard and Newton, and it was also one of the primary sources of funds. Those of us who had split from the party agreed to attack the paper by destroying the distribution office in San Francisco and its annex in New York. The office in San Francisco was blown up, and the one in Corona, Queens, was burned down. After the fire was extinguished, the bound and bullet-riddled body of Sam Napier, just 32 years old, was found in the ruins. Sam had been there at the beginning of the paper, when circulation was almost entirely local, and he had always worked like 10 people to make it happen. As the paper grew along with the organization, it finally reached the point where it was being printed each week in a run of 250,000 copies. It would come from the printers at night and be air freighted to all the offices and branches throughout the country. Subscriptions were sent out the same night. Sam's Bible was Lenin's What is to be Done? A pamphlet dedicated to the idea that the people needed to be educated on political ideals in order to stage a successful revolution. Because Sam had always been in charge of the paper, most of its organization and distribution processes were in his head, he was indispensable. Thus, the destruction of the distribution offices and the assassination of Sam were considered an effective response to the violence and murders being perpetrated by Newton and his gang of cutthroats. Evidently, it had an effect, because it ended the violence immediately associated with the split in the party. I recognize, with a heavy heart, that the four people killed as a result of the split, Bill Seidler, Fred Bennett, Spiderweb, and Sam Napier, were all comrades of mine, three of them from San Francisco. The only thing to do then was leave Algiers, go back to the States, and help deal with the fallout. It was going to take some time, and yet there was no time to waste. Something had to be done, urgently, because there were many people who were now more or less stranded abroad without support. Before I left, however, we wanted to gather as much information as possible, in hopes it would help us devise a new organizational structure to serve our goals of growth, development, and security. Comrades in San Francisco sent a representative to participate in our discussions, and the ideas we debated would then be carried back to the states for further clarification and revision. We made contact with representatives from all the liberation movements in Algiers that had ever engaged in any form of urban guerrilla warfare. All day, every day, for a week we received representatives from the different struggles. The only ones we didn't get the chance to talk to were the Tupamaros of Uruguay and the Bader-Meinhof group of Germany. Of every group, we asked that they explain their respective organizational structures and describe their strengths and weaknesses. We made copious notes and recordings. After our final meeting, we talked among ourselves and attempted to synthesize all that we had learned toward creating our own mechanism, customized to deal with our own situation, and profiting from the lessons we had learned from other urban guerrilla struggles. Eldridge refused to participate. He said he didn't have any ideas and, frankly, after the incident that had ended in the death of little Bobby, back in 1968, I knew he was telling the truth. I was not surprised. But I also knew that none of us had any ideas either. I knew the struggle would be a long haul. It wasn't something that was going to happen overnight. The thing to do was take the time to build something solid and real, something that would have a chance to confront real problems and thereby gain the confidence of others and grow. We figured it would require an above-ground organization, but, at the same time, 
we wanted it have a clandestine aspect that was structured for maximum security and survival, even while being connected to and drawing its lifeblood from the above-ground mechanism. Many comrades who were already underground didn't have an organized support mechanism and were in an extremely vulnerable position. We knew devising a liaison between the above-ground and the underground would be complicated, the form of a foolproof liaison has yet to be invented, and it has historically been a weak point with all revolutionary movements. We shared these ideas with our Bay Area comrade and he took them all back to San Francisco. When our ideas were put before the comrades there, that's when the next split took place. The group was divided between those who more or less supported our ideas and those who didn't. Among those who rejected them were to be found some who had decided they didn't want anything more to do with revolution and those who were convinced that the time had come to start the war. I don't know to this day which of the comrades supported the ideas we sent over, but the one comment that came back to me from the side that didn't was this, fuck DC. It was at about this time that the New York 21 were finally freed from all those ridiculous charges, and now they were hitting the streets. They immediately issued a statement saying they didn't want anything to do with anyone that was then, or ever had been, connected to headquarters and the Central Committee of the Black Panther Party. I was torn apart. Given the state of things when they were released, and everything that had led up to what they had endured, it was easy to understand why. But even though I had fought to support them, I had been a member of the Central Committee, and that meant they didn't want anything to do with me either. They didn't know the details of my current relationship with the party, and I knew it wasn't possible to explain at that time, and anyway, I didn't think they would have listened or cared. Siku and Larry, on the other hand, were both from New York, and so it was only natural that the New York 21 would ally themselves with comrades they knew and had struggled with. That, then, split up the group in Algiers. I received the blow with silence, and determined then that I'd try to get along with everyone until I could get myself together and leave Algiers. Everyone else was doing the same, but I think I took it especially hard. I hadn't known Larry before Algiers, and we had never become close, but I'd always considered Saku one of the best comrades I personally knew, except for his attitude toward women. Having Saku's back turned on me left me feeling alone, the only one I had left was Barbara. But she wouldn't be staying for long. There was nothing preventing her from traveling, and there was nothing more for her to do in Algiers, so she was free to leave and go elsewhere, where she could be more productive. I realized it was no use trying to convince anyone of anything, at least not from Algiers. If I had any hope of continuing the struggle, it would be a question of whether we could start all over again. I would need to associate myself with a new group and start from scratch, cutting off all communications with everyone else. I was so down, I mostly just wanted to be forgotten. I withdrew from participating in activities at the office and stayed at the point. It was necessary, for my own safety, to get used to being alone and not moving around, so that's what I did. I didn't make an official public announcement of my resignation from the Black Panther Party, mostly because I didn't want to cause any political problems for us in Algiers. No one was prepared to leave yet, so everyone was playing it cool. Finally, help materialized in the form of a comrade from the Bader Meinhof group in Germany. I was disappointed to discover that at that time they were more or less moving for action's sake and action's sake alone, meaning there didn't seem to be a concrete strategy behind the actions they took. But they had done an excellent job of analyzing their problem and identifying the enemy, and had even carried out several spectacular actions that captured the world's imagination. But where were the politics behind it? 
no matter how spectacular an action was, if it didn't serve to raise the political consciousness of large masses of people, and then mobilize them, it would only give the powers that be an excuse to implement more repressive measures on a general scale. And one of the highest, if not the highest, priority for gaining the support of large masses of people is justice. Justice must be the driving force. If justice cannot be seen in the design of an action, it will turn people off. We couldn't afford to let that happen.